Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Beatles Revolution number 19 in this episode of the podcast. I'm going to share with you Steve Winwood's interview with me here at Q1043 this past week. This is September of 2017. Steve Winwood came up because he's got a live double album out, CD and vinyl, uh, that he's called from the different phases of his career. And while it's not directly about the Beatles, it's parallel to everything that he did. He started with the Spencer Davis Group early 60s through the psychedelic days of traffic and English folk, prog, jazz. What words do you want to use for blind faith into playing with Clapton in his solo career through the 80s? This is a guy who's been playing professionally. We've known his music since he's 14 years old. He was 14 when he joined the Spencer Davis group. So the second half of this podcast, we'll be talking with Steve Winwood and get an inside look at what British rock was through the 60s and 70s through his eyes. But going back a few years to this, on this week, September 26th to be exact, in 1969, the Beatles' final album came out, Abbey Road. It broke the record. What was it, 11 weeks at number one? Now, the debate is always, is Let It Be or is Abbey Road the final Beatles album? Abbey Road is technically the 11th album, and you want to say that Let It Be is the 12th album. But... Mark Lewinson, in his book, has said something that I, has, I have always felt. It's not so much when it was released. Not to me, anyway. So Let It Be was released on May 8, 1970. Abbey Road was released September 26, 1969. Let It Be released a year later. But Let It Be was recorded February of 68 and January, February of 69, you know, with some extra material. They're at each other's throats. The idea of getting back to where they originally were, just playing live and the movie as the band's coming apart at the seams just didn't work well. They broke up for all intents and purposes. And the guys decided we won't want to let it end like this. We can't end such a beautiful dream in such acrimony and darkness. Let's come back together and make a proper Beatle album to finish. So in February of 1969, right after they finished Let It Be, they come back and do Abbey Road. So they pretty much finished principal you know, recording for, for Let It Be in February of 69, and then come right back February through August to record Abbey Road. And even though Abbey Road came out a year before Let It Be, if, you, if this is the last thing all four Beatles participated in as a recording project, then I'm sorry, then that's the last album to me. Definitive by Paul's last line, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And we go through it. It is truly a masterpiece that everyone says it is. You know, it's funny, the rock critics who all say like, well, you know, it's popular and all that, but if you think of uh, the groundbreaking, like, just stop. 
They weren't trying to be groundbreaking. They weren't trying to. That's the thing about it. If you ever listen to it now, and I, I don't know, I've heard it a few thousand times maybe, as have we all, you don't hear groundbreaking. You hear joy. You hear great songwriting. You hear great playing, great singing. You hear a Beatles album. It wasn't trying to do anything except be a great Beatles album, and it was just one of the greatest albums ever. Sgt. Pepper had a purpose. Revolver had a purpose. Even the White Album, collection of solo albums, if you will, that had its purpose. But the but Abbey Road's only purpose was to end this beautiful dream with one of the greatest Beatle albums ever, and they did. Let's go through Abbey Road track by track. I'll give you Ken Dashow's two cents on it, and you can agree or tell me I'm absolutely crazy. But the idea was to come back together and explain the Beatles and play musically the way we used to and be on our best behavior and not be ravaging each other. It was a song that John Lennon had put together for Jerry Brown's campaign for governor of California, for his presidential campaign. Let's get together. So come together. But he starts it by nicking a line from Chuck Berry, you can't catch me. Here come old flat top. He come grooving up slowly. And he got sued by Morris Levy, who owned the catalog. And even if you're a Beatle, you don't mess with Morris Levy. <laughs> no, it's like you're not messing with Tony Soprano on that. So we start with here come old flat top. He come grooving up slowly. He got Juju eyeball, one holy roller, hair down to his knee. Got to be a joker. He just do what he please. So who do you think that is? Hmm? What do you think? Who's a holy roller? Yes. First one is about George Harrison. Now, the strangest one is the second verse, which I assume is Ringo. You know, he wear no shoe shine, toe jam football, shoot Coca-Cola. Uh, one thing I tell you is it got to be free. It's vague, and it could apply to any of them. But number three is definitely John singing about himself. He bagged production, bag one productions. He got walrus gumboot. You know, I'm the walrus. He got Ono sideboard. He won spinal cracker. He got feet down below his knee. Hold you in his armchair. You can feel his disease. Always gave me the creeps when I was a kid. But, you know, clearly it's okay to make fun of somebody else because John's making fun of himself. And now for last, he roller coaster. He got muddy water. He won mojo filter. Paul had only been busted for a pot, what, 27 times by now? He say one and one and one is three. I'm leaving. But, you know, yes, Paul said he's leaving. But it really, we both know that John was the one who wanted to leave the Beatles. That's why he forced Yoko as a wedge, as a chisel, to break them apart. You know, Paul, got to be good looking because he's so hard to see. Isn't it weird to play bass and to play it with your friend writing these songs that are just like kind of giving it to you. But, you know, it happened all the time. Only the Beatles could pull that together. And George playing that beautiful bottleneck slide guitar. To cut to maybe the most beautiful song that George Harrison has ever written, something. John Lennon said it's the best song he ever wrote. Frank Sinatra said it was the greatest love song ever, something. Even though he credited it to Lennon and McCartney, hey, George did just fine on that album. We get to number three, Maxwell Silver Hammer. Paul doing his English music hall, happy, dancey number, but about a psycho killer, Maxwell Silver Hammer. You know, just proving once again in this happy sort of bouncy, da 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 Paul loved English dance hall music. 
but it's about a psychotic killer. We get Oh Darling, which John was jealous he didn't get a chance to sing. Paul would come in early before the appointed time, and he would do one take a day because he knew he could only scream like that once a day. And once he did that, then he was done. And John didn't hear it until the song was pretty much finished. And John looked at him and said, I, I would have liked to go with that. Oh, oh darling, please believe me. Please believe me, darling. Next, we get to Ringo's song, Octopus's Garden. One of the few songs that Ringo brought in the door with the lyrics. They polished it up and beetled it for him and made it into a structured thing. But Ringo, on a break from his mind breaking from the Beatles, on a yacht, I believe it was off the coast of Sardinia, and the captain was telling him about snorkeling and scuba diving, that octopuses build themselves little gardens, that they take shells and bits of tinsel if they find anything shiny, and they arrange little gardens for themselves to sit in. And Ringo just thought, I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. He said, I've finally written the song. And you know what? That's as good a lyric as the Beatles ever came up with. Ringo walks it in. And they know, again, this has to be great. You can't throw away one note, one bar of music. Octopus's Garden to this date, one of the great Beatles songs and one of the introductions for kids to Beatles music. Perfection. Now we get to the blues. I want you. She's so heavy. John's song for Yoko. Just keep it simple, strip it down, and that's the entire set of lyrics. When you think about I Am the Walrus, when you think how complex some of the songs John wrote across the universe, I want you, I want you so bad, I want you so bad, it's driving me mad. That's it. I want you, I want you so bad, I want you so bad, she's driving me mad, she's so heavy at the end. And what happened was he had told Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, I want you to stop the tape right here. What is it, 744, whatever it is. And in the old days of being on radio, we didn't have digital or countdown clocks or CD players. When it was vinyl, you had to count the bars. Da, 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 da. And you had to be ready when that song ended so abruptly. And the truth is there were only about 20 seconds of tape left before it ran out. And John said, just stop it here, because that's how John would roll. Then we get George Part Two, the other greatest song he ever wrote during his Beatle years, and some will say even during his solo work, Here Comes the Sun, sitting in his garden in England at Friar Park. Little darling, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter. And to me, I always thought of it in terms of where he was at the time mentally, the acrimony that starts with the White Album and rolls through Let It Be. I'll play if you want me to play. I won't play if you want whatever pleases you. No, I'm just saying, I'll do whatever pleases you. Instead of just having fun, they're at each other's throat. Here comes the sun. We're just going to make a nice Beatle album. And, you know, no yelling or screaming. Now, Ellen Parsons, who is the tea and tape boy, as he described, go for tea, go for more tape, during these sessions, and I've interviewed him, he said they were rarely in there all together, all four of them. They'd each work on a bit or come in or drop by, but it wasn't like the four of them were in there eight to 10 hours a day. And you know what? When you're not getting along, sometimes that's the easiest way. Hey, how you doing? Here, listen to what I've done. And you do it piece by piece. But George, here comes the sun. You know, in that, in the, the seven chant, it's in the, even though he's playing Western instruments, 
It's very much an Indian rhythm pattern that he's playing in it. And then we get John with his Moog synthesizer and because, and you know, you want to talk about Beatle harmonies. It's as perfect a three-part harmony as anybody ever sang, sang. You know, only brothers like the Bee Gees or the Everly Brothers usually can sing in such perfect harmony. Simon and Garfunkel found it, even though they were just friends. So these guys really were brothers, the three perfect voices. If you want to hear how three people equal one voice, I mean, when you think about it, without any vocal training at all, how did these guys figure out how to sing perfect three-part harmony and singing in the middle and in between it, as beautiful as, no, as beautiful a noise as CSN makes when they sing together because nothing can top that, not even the Bee Gees. Sorry, Barry Gibb. To You Never Give Me Your Money. Uh, was it about Paul suing the other three, having to sue them in order to get to Alan Klein? The dissolution of Apple? You, know, you never give me your money, you only give me your funny paper. I assume that's lawsuits. Um, you know, Paul always played coy about it, never saying, well, it is or it isn't. He just, and that's the right thing to do. Just let us guess. But that's what I always heard in the song as just the chorus. And then, you know, it gets into the daily life of how somebody lo- lives and what he's trying to do. We flip over the record because it should be vinyl and you flip it over and we get to the two medleys, the Sun King medley and Golden Slumbers. And when Paul said, how about a medley of all these great little songs rather than expanding them, we'll tie them together. I believe it was a gentleman by the name of John Lennon who said, we already did that. <laughs> and Paul said, yeah, but you know, it'll work. You know, it's going to work. It'll work. You know, it will. They're great. And I'm like, yeah, okay, we're not fighting anymore. We're not fighting anymore. Paul's right. He's always right. Okay, we'll just do it. And you get this beautiful, I, it couldn't have been on any other album. Even though Strawberry Fields is a magical, psychedelic, easy journey afloat down a river, the Sun King couldn't have been on Sgt. Pepper. It certainly doesn't fit Magical Mystery Tour. What other album could the Sun King medley have come on? Of John making up Spanish lyrics, just making it up, Chica Verde, and singing their beautiful harmonies with Paul's swampy, slow bass. You were sitting in the sun in Spain just walking through a little town. That's what I hear. And then we change, and then there's a song that easily could have been uh, come right after being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, Mean Mr. Mustard, who when I was a kid in 1969, I was 11 years old, always keeps a 10-pound note up his nose. I I didn't understand. I I knew a note meant money, like a note was a dollar in England, you know, a bank note. But I couldn't understand why he'd have a note up his nose. I just thought it was silly. Later you go, when I, they, I you don't want to laugh? I'm backstage at some concert, uh, and I'm not being coy. I can't remember. It's the 80s, and suddenly, you know, I'm at NEW, and I get to go backstage to stuff, and I'm hanging, and there's rock stars, and everybody's there. And it was the first time I ever saw somebody roll up, like, a $20 bill to do cocaine. And instead of going, oh, my God, that's cocaine. And by the way, I'm a total nerd. I've just, I've never done it. It's not for me. It's not, I never, I'll, I'll have a glass of wine or a scotch at night. Thank you. But it's just not my thing. But the first time I saw somebody roll up money to snort cocaine, my first thought was, oh, always keeps a 10-pound note up his nose. Oh, I get it. Such a dirty old man. Oh, I get it. Now I get it. Then we shift right into hard rock and poly-themed pan. Look out. 
She came in through the bathroom window. Snatches of great imagery that John and Paul come up with that they just tie together. And then we stop. What should we do next? How about another medley? And if they didn't kill Paul at that point. But again, they're two perfect medleys. We get to the Golden Slumbers medley. Because clearly, Paul is thinking, how am I going to put this in a bow? How do you wrap up the Beatles? You could dig in and say, I'm going to write our own history like Mark Lewison does. It's going to research and dates and all that. Mark's work is brilliant. But Paul kind of wraps up the Beatles spiritually once there was a way to get back homeward. You know, looking back from the early days in the Cavern Club, when he's been touring now, he's doing In Spite of All the Danger, a song they recorded before they were the Beatles. They were still the Quarrymen. Once there was a way to get back homeward. Golden slumbers, you're going to carry that weight a long time. The weight of doing bad, the weight of ego, the weight of being in the most famous rock band in the world, the weight of being more famous than any musician who ever lived. You know, there's weight. And then we get to the end. The perfect, by the way, the thing about carry that weight at the end as they're trading off guitar riffs, you know, the idea was to say goodbye. Everything they did, everybody was take a drum solo. Hey, Ring, you got to do a drum solo. No, I don't do drum solos. I hate drum solos. So he did a bunch of different solos and against his will, but said, you have to say goodbye. We're all going to say goodbye with our instruments and you have to say goodbye as we carry that weight with us of being in the Beatles. So cobbled together by the brilliant George Martin, we get Ringo Starr's only drum solo in the Beatles catalog. You know, not pan hard left to right, but true stereo with different mics and different drums. Then 18 bars of lead guitar that is shared. The first two bars of lead guitar, McCartney. The second two, George Harrison. The third two by Lennon, and the sequence repeats. McCartney, Harrison, Lennon. McCartney, Harrison, Lennon. John was the one who decided they should trade solos, and Paul said, yeah, I'll go first. And the solos were cut live against the backing track in one take. All three of them with electric guitars knocked that out in one take. If you think they lost anything off their fastball in 1969. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're nuts. You're absolutely nuts. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Beautiful. Beautiful. You can't sum it up any better than that. Socrates, Gandhi never said it any better than that. But there's this little clip that was supposed to come in between Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pan called Her Majesty. Just a little quick hit of Paul on acoustic guitar. And you hear it's the last note of, is it, is it, uh, no, I'm sorry, between Polythene Pan and she came in through the bathroom window. Dun, dun. Dum, Her Majesty's a really fine girl. So they weren't going to use it. It ruined the flow. But John says, well, we can't end it with something that heavy and beautiful. Let's do something silly. Beatles were silly. So after a pause, 
And especially this happened because of vinyl, because you had to get up to change the record. So you thought you were done. And then after a longer groove in between, a longer rollout, Her Majesty's a really fine girl. Someday I'm going to get a belly full of wine. Someday I'm going to make her mine. And you, you don't end with this elegiac line. You end with a little bit of Python-esque, which they were, you know, pre Well, at that time, Python was still going. But it's the Goon Show. It's Peter Sellers. A little bit of comedy to say goodbye. And that, to me, is why the Beatles' Abbey Road, released here in September of 1969, was their final album. Now, to explain the 60s and British Invasion music and what it was like to be creating this music right alongside of the Beatles. Steve Winwood came up this week to Q1043. He's got a new live double CD out that he curated throughout his live shows. And he's just an enigma because just because he doesn't do a lot of radio interviews, he hardly, he doesn't do the chat shows. He doesn't play out or do, you know, TV performances. But I have loved his music from the early days of Gimme Some Lovin' with a B3 organ playing lead in Right to Traffic with Low Spark. There were two tracks. There's the early days of Psychedelic Traffic, Paper Sun, Dear Mr. Fantasy, Heaven is in Your Mind, 40,000 Headmen, and Traffic Part 2 when they came back together and we catch on Barleycorn and Low Spark of the High Heel Boys and uh, Shoot Out at the Fantasy Factory and Roll Right Stones and just amazing music. On to Blind Faith with Eric Clapton and on to this incredible solo career through the 80s. Steve Winwood joins me in the studio, one of my bucket list thrills in radio. In the studio with me, somebody I have admired my entire life, and I've never had the chance to interview him, and I'm just going to just stare at him dumbstruck because I worship this man's music, Mr. Steve Winwood at Q104.3. Hi. Thank you so much Hi. for coming up. You're welcome. It's funny, your career, like the Beatles, like the Stones, encompasses all phases of British rock. From 64, with the Spencer Davis group, like the Beatles starting out, to late 60s, Psychedelic and Traffic and Blind Faith, to some of the greatest songs we ever had in the 80s, you've really done it all. But you started very young. You were performing even as a child, right? Well, yeah, I was very lucky. I, I, I came from a musical family on both sides, grandparents, they all played instruments, My and I started playing with my playing 30s and 40s dance music in the sort of mid-50s with my dad, who played uh, in dance bands. I also came into into rock, if, it, if in fact it is rock music that I play, I'm not... I would say it is, yes. Well, you know, there's... I always try and inject these elements of, you know, folk and jazz and, and ethnic music into what I do as well, so... But let's call it rock. I, mean, um, I actually came into rock music th- more through jazz. Listen, there are people like you who are alchemists, who bring all these elements together. In your first big band, the Spencer Davis Group, you're playing lead Hammond B3 organ, those great hits of I'm a Man and Give Me Some Lovin'. How old were you when you joined the Spencer Davis Group? Thinking Spencer Davis Group, I think. Well, I started about 14, 15. That's insane. 16, yes. That's yeah. nuts. Wow. And then you get to this psychedelic band whose music has meant so much to me through the years. Traffic. I can still remember the moment I first heard it. Freshman year of college, upstate, Hobart College, walking across the quadrangle, and there's a guy with speakers out his window, and I hear this thing. 
the low spark of the high heel boys. And I just stood transfixed. I had never heard anything like it. Ran up the stairs, knocked on his door, and he just showed me the album. There it was, and from that day on, the music of Traffic has been one of my best friends throughout my life. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, Low Spark of Higher Boys is what I'd call Traffic's sort of second chapter. Yes. I think Traffic at that time were, were just making music entirely for our own pleasure. We were making these long, drawn-out tracks, a lot of jazz and folk, and we were really playing all this stuff for our own uh, uh, enjoyment and entertainment without any view to commerciality commer- well or even whether it would be played on the radio because because in the time of top 40 they wanted things two and a half minutes or three minutes but it just happened at that particular time fm radio appeared yep. and wanted these long drawn out songs which we just happened to be playing by default really and I'm still sort of li- living the legacy of of those times because um, because we did connect, I think, with that audience that were listening to FM radio at the time. I mean, 1967, the Beatles have Sgt. Pepper, You've Got Dear Mr. Fantasy, Psychedelic Rock, Traffic Breaks Up, but you come back together in 1970 with one of the greatest albums ever, John Barleycorn Must Die. Love that album. I think, you know, John Barleycorn in many ways is um, the definitive Traffic album. It has that fluidity. And so many different styles and, and different elements. elements that we brought together. It's got jazz, rock, blues, glad freedom rider, traditional English magical, John Barleycorn Must Die, and the greatest song to me ever written about writer's block, Staring at Empty Pages, Steve Winwood with the greatest hits live out, two CDs, two vinyl albums. He's curated from all phases of his career. Early, Spencer Davis Group, Traffic, Blind Faith, all the great songs from the 80s, Ark of a Diver, Freedom Overspill, While You See a Chance, Roll It. And we're just talking about the seminal Traffic album, John Barleycorn Must Die. Steve, every time I play that song on the air, it never fails, a phone call or an email. Ken, that's such a violent song. What are you talking about? This poor man, they chop his legs off with a scythe and they ground him up between stones. And I always say, have you really listened to the song? Yes, it's violent. I said, the tinker can mend neither kettle or pot without a little barley corn. And there's usually a pause and I get, oh. Well, it, well, you know, it is interesting as people read into songs, particularly in lyric, they often read their own story. Um, of course. Into it. And, um, you know, people do with Low Spark of Higher Boys. People have said to me, I love that song, Low Spark of Higher Boys. What, what's it about? Well, I said, well, if you love it, how can you love it if you don't know what it's about? <laughs> Maybe the fact that you don't know what it's about is why you love it. And, of course, John Barleycorn goes back a very long way. It's a sort of 15th century or earlier song. Truly a traditional English ballad. And it's sometimes called the passion of the corn as well. And of course, corn in uh, English is, is not, in America, it's that stuff, that yellow stuff that you eat on the cob. <laughs> but in English, corn is a generic word for any cereal. Got it. Any grain. Yeah. So that's why in the New World, they call maize corn because... Got it. it. Thank you. Because it's, um, it's the cereal that was used by the native... Thank you for explaining this. See, you can explain this song. So now 
tell me about hippos not wearing hats and lobsters shrieking. Now, now when we get to when the eagle flies, now, I mean, the poetry, the psychedelic poetry from the Beatles right to traffic is amazing. Like the chord changers, so complex. Mark Rivera from Billy Joel's band and Ringo, one of the few musicians who does a traffic tribute band because he said the musicianship has to be on such a high level to pull off these songs. There aren't too many traffic tribute bands, that's for sure. I wish there were, <laughs> but uh, no, there aren't many. You're right. Steve Winwood, my special guest here at Q1043 in the studio. Uh, from We could do this the entire day and not scratch the surface. Spencer Davis Group. We get to traffic. We get to blind faith, to the amazing solo career. Arc of a Diver, where I, I'm told you recorded that in your cottage, right? And you played all the instruments on it. Yeah. Um, well... Yes, I mean, I've been wanting to do that for a while, but of course the technology before that wasn't wasn't that easy. And of course, in order to have a recording you know, studio in your house was virtually unheard of because you had to have huge, great machines. And right. This is big, pre-Pro uh, Pro Tools, folks. You didn't have a laptop. Pre, to re- pre-Pro Tools. Now, <laughs> of course, you do it on a laptop or even an iPhone, I think, if you want. Um, but of course, in those days, it... it and then, because the the the, the technology is moving very quick in uh, at the end of the seventies, and um, uh, also, I just we just gone through um, the punk era, you know, right? Um, in that seventies, which was which was in many ways directed against the likes of me. <laughs> so uh, um, I wasn't quite sure what what the future held for me. So I thought, well, at least. I can make a record which is exactly as I wanted to do, ex- uh, uh, with the exception, of course, I, w- I worked with the great Will Jennings, um, who helped me write um, some of the lyrics for some of the songs on Arkham Diver, and also um, Viv Stanshaw, who oh, you Bonzo talked about. Dog um, man. Um, Lobsters don't wear hats. Um, <laughs> of which course, is, that would be a Viv. Like, that's yes. just Viv Stanshaw from the great Bonzo <laughs> Dog, uh, and of course, Viv will be is very much missed by us all. One of the yeah. true eccentrics of his of his um, era. Now, here's a rumor that I had heard about recording "Ark of a Diver" that the long synthesizer intro that you kept trying to punch in on it. And we're racing the drum track as you yeah. went and punched it. Is that true? That's right. And then you yes. say, I better stop messing with it or I'll have no drums The left. drums came in from the very beginning and they were erased up until the point that they come in. Yeah. <laughs> I love so, knowing that. Well, so I wasn't going to go go there and, and try and play the drums again because it was hard enough to, for me to get that right the first time. So just leave a big synth intro and it'll come in when it does. That's, and it, that's it. And, it. and of course, it's perfect. You know, that rock and roll accidents that are absolutely perfect that make it happen. The first quote-unquote supergroup, Blind Faith, you and Eric Clapton and Rick Gretsch and Ginger Baker, and it's it's one album, and it's brilliant. And I Can't Find My Way Home is played as much today as the day you released it. And all these songs were just incredible that just moved us so did you see the documentary Beware Mr. Baker? Yes, I did. Yeah. Your your comments <laughs> on that documentary, Mr. Winwood, sir, at this time. Thoughts? Oh, oh on the documentary. <laughs> yes. Oh, you know, Ginger, he, I yeah. mean, he is another one of the great eccentrics of, of our time. That's one way of putting uh, uh, it? Um, he I, broke the kid's nose. He, he broke the kid's he nose. I know. <laughs> uh, well, well, he does have his sort of angry side. Uh, um, 
as well. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the Blind Faith album stood up very well uh, as an album. But you know, we did have trouble when we went on the road. Uh, things weren't. We felt in many ways that we were sort of. Um, I think a lot of people wanted much heavier music, and and some of Blind Faith's music were. Was quite delicate compared to what we'd been doing, yeah. and people were expecting sort of arena rock, and we were going out with with acoustic guitars playing "Can't Find My Way Home," and, and we somehow felt that we had to, we felt pressured into into changing what we were doing, and both Eric and I, I think, simultaneously lost interest in what we were doing live. Like and, what you were doing was great, but they wanted cream. Basically, I is what think th they yeah. want cream, or at least they wanted some heavier rock stuff, and uh, we had some, you know, but we weren't doing enough of it, I don't think. And and uh, and Eric and I also felt that we didn't really have enough time to explore exactly what we were trying to do before we 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 were sort of pushed out on the road. Right, right. We needed more time to sort of simmer I think and, we did. and settle. Yeah. But you and Clapton remained friends through the years, have you? Well, at that point, we sort of drifted apart, drifted our, our separate ways, and then, and then about ten years ago, um, Eric um, called me. We'd we'd been in touch from time to time. He said, "I think we've got some unfinished business to do." What a beautiful way to start it was, the conversation! It was fantastic. That's great. And uh, he's uh, and very generously uh, um, offered. Uh, uh, first of all, we played together at um, a small festival to see if we could make it work, and we decided we could, and then we went at the garden. Steve Winwood, my special guest here, Q1043, what an honor, what a pleasure to talk to you and talk music. I could do it all day. Um, one last point before I let you go. I'm the Beatle geek here. They meant so much to me. From mm -hmm. Same thing as you, from the early <laughs> days from Ed Sullivan and Suits, and they take me through Sgt. Pepper. They, they taught us how... You know, they changed the music along with everyone else and opened doors for every other band and how to go. Tell me about your take. When did you first hear the Beatles and what was what did you think? I think it well, I think I think the Beatles went through sort of different phases as well, didn't they? They yes. had their their um early please please me stuff and and um love me do and all that that stuff. And um um, and then, of course, uh, uh, during the time we were we were putting traffic together, they they got very involved in in the uh, hands-on re recording, which um, when we were in traffic, which is also something that we wanted very much to do. So we were very interested in what they were doing around that that sixty-seven, yes, sixty-eight period, um, and um, they. They pioneered lots of lots of um, uh, uh, recording techniques. Do you remember first hearing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band when yes. it came out, '67? Yes, I, um, well, it's a long time ago. Yes, I don't know. What, I mean, I know I heard it, but I don't remember I where mean, I was. I'm just admit, fifty years later, to the year, the number one selling album in the UK and America this summer was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts oh, Club yes. Band. Yeah, thank you so much. Find it to see kids who are 12 years old wearing Beatles and traffic T-shirts are the coolest thing in the world. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Great talking to you. Thank you very much.
So that's what we learned from Steve Winwood about British rock, just as he started with Spencer Davis' group writing two three-minute hits, I'm a Man, Give Me Some Lovin', as did the Beatles, expanding into 67 psychedelic jams. And as Stevie said, we didn't have expectations of success, but the Beatles did. That's the biggest difference in the world. As everybody else was experimenting, I don't think Pink Floyd thought they were going to have hits. Maybe they hope, but look what happens by the time you get to Dark Side of the Moon in the early 70s. The Beatles had primed the pump. FM radio comes along, and they want seven-minute singles like Light My Fire with a jazz organ solo in the middle. And Low Spark of the High Heel Boys gets played on the air as it is today in 2017. Once again, the Beatles cut a new path through the jungle and explained to us how to listen to music, and we loved it. Whether they led or just walked with us, hard to say. But in the Beatles' case, they were always just at least a step or two out in front, if not a mile. Thank you, Steve Winwood, for taking us through your different phases, smiling phases of traffic, blind faith, and more. Beatles podcast number 19 in the books. I'll catch you next week. Ken Dashow, you can always find me at Q1043.com and here on your iTunes and iHeartRadio podcast page. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.